Welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Aaron Best. And I'm Ricarda Faber. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of the Ecologic Institute in Berlin. The European Green Deal is an ambitious plan aimed at making the European Union carbon neutral by 2050. But achieving this goal isn't just about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It's also about ensuring that the transition to a sustainable future is fair and equitable for all. And that's where the idea of a just transition comes in. Just transition is a multifaceted concept that covers environmental, economic, social, and political aspects. It also entails specific challenges and opportunities. To help us explore the concept of just transition, we have invited two guests to join us. Frank Siebern Thomas, Head of Fair, Green and Digital Transitions at the Directorate General for Employment, Social Affairs and Inclusion at the European Commission, and Ludwig Wood, Confederal Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. Frank and Ludwig, welcome to Green Deal Big Deal. Hello from Brussels. Hello. Now, before we start, I'd like to play you a snippet from Ursula von der Leyen's speech in which she stressed the importance on the implementation of the EU Green Deal to be in a fair and just way. This is part of a speech she held on the 13th of September this year on the State of the European Union. Honorable members, this shows that when it comes to the European Green Deal, we stay the course, we stay ambitious, and we stick to our growth strategy. And we will always strive for fair and just transition. The Commissioner von der Leyen uh, stressed the importance on a topic we're discussing today. Could you please clarify for our listeners what a just transition actually means? Not everyone might be familiar with it. Frank? Thank you for the invitation again and for allowing to participate in this podcast. I believe to start that just transition does not have one single definition. One widely shared definition was brought forward by the International Labour Organization, who issued guidelines on just transition in 2015. And in that context, they did define just transition as greening the economy in a way that is as fair and inclusive as possible to everyone concerned, creating decent work opportunities and leaving no one behind. For us, just transition or fair transition, as we use both terms interchangeably, is a transition that leaves no one behind, no person, no place. And this is one that concerns the whole society, in particular those most affected by the green transition, including workers in certain sectors or people living in certain regions and those already in vulnerable situations, for example, poor households and marginalized communities. To us, it means that the transition enables and empowers everyone to benefit from the opportunities of the transition towards climate neutrality and sustainable economies and societies. It further means that the costs and efforts of the transition are distributed in a fair way. As a consequence, it means a transition during which the right accompanying policies are in place, that address the employment and social aspects of the transition from the outset, not as an afterthought once negative or unintended effects kick in. This is a precondition also for our broad social acceptance and public support for climate policies. And Ludovic, does this fit your definition? Do you have anything to add? Yes, of course, I have things to add. The just transition is a concept that emerged in the trade union movement, as Frank was mentioning. 
it was created as a concept to us for uh, having framework in place to mitigate effects on workers of environmental protection, for example. But if you adapt it here to the climate crisis, it means that we have a starting point in climate policies where we want to make sure that the transition of the world of work is fair and just for everyone. It's about transforming the world of work. If there's a coal phase out, for example, of some industries, this means that some jobs will be destroyed, others will be created, and we need to have an approach that protects people, that protects workers. We have a starting point in the trade union movement on climate action that of course, there will be no job on a dead planet. And as Frank was mentioning, also the concept of leaving no one behind. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be helpful to hear some specific examples of sectors or jobs, communities that are particularly important to address in this context. Uh, Ludovic, do you have some specific examples that you'd like to raise to help make this a bit more concrete? Sure. Uh, maybe first Spain. I'm mentioning Spain because in 2018, there were negotiations between the government, the local authorities, the employers and the trade unions in the mining sector in order to phase out the mines in Spain, but not phase out and just make the jobs disappear, but have a protective social plan for workers so that those who are affected can access early retirement, for example, that those of them that can be retrained can access financing to be retrained for going to green jobs. Also, making sure that you develop the training systems, the vocational education and training institutions that can also do uh, these trainings, securing also unemployment benefits for those who need them, but then having plans in these regions to invest in order to create the jobs that have to phase in. Uh, if we have a phase out of coal mines, we need also to have a phase in of good quality jobs, green jobs that people can work in in their communities. And this is a good example because making an agreement with the companies, with the trade unions, that you can design in regions the concrete solutions for these regions. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And turning to you, Frank, we're talking about a quite rapid transition to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. Are there regions of the European Union that are particularly affected by such an ambitious goal? And are there common threads that connect them, uh, you know, in terms of their economic profile, or is it actually quite diverse in character? Yes, there are, I think, common challenges to certain regions. At the same time, each region has a specific set both of challenges and opportunities they have to face, including opportunities of creating new jobs. And what we do, actually, we look in our analysis, and I share the views, points made by Ludovic before, on the importance, obviously, of assessing employment skills, social distributional impacts of these policies in advance and take them into account in policies. So what we do try to do is to assess those impacts, both as regards risks of job losses in certain regions due to phasing out industries, even more challenging probably or wider problems of or questions, challenges of reallocation of labor, restructuring of companies in sectors which are transforming sectors. I'll probably say a word about this in a second too. And third, we also try to assess what are the opportunities in new sectors coming up, in particular renewable energy production through wind, solar, power or other technologies. If you allow me to go back to the start, the European Green Deal and the initiatives launched under it, including the so-called Fit for 55 package, which was a big legislative package of more than 20 measures proposed in 2021 by the Commission and negotiated since by the European Parliament, the European Council, and that most of them adopted which were the initiatives put in place to update legislation or come up with new legislation to help us meet our 
more ambitious climate targets, in particular the target to reduce emissions by at least 55% by 2030. So a lot of new initiatives have been put in place to set price incentives, but also to set new standards or rules and targets to bring everyone on board in this transition. All of these initiatives in the Commission and that standard regulation practice and policy-making practice in the European Commission are based on so-called impact assessments. So we look in advance at different policy options and what are the expected economic, social, environmental impacts, including distributional impacts. And overall, our analysis shows that the green transition has the, the potential to bring about what we like to call a triple dividend, ben three types of benefits, reducing emissions, creating new creating quality jobs in the transition and also putting everyone better off. But all of this is obviously not automatic and requires right policies in place to accompany that transition. So our policies, while they try to build in fairness aspects and just transition aspects from the beginning, acknowledge that the transition, which is a policy-driven one, will have real consequences on people, on workers, on consumers, on citizens, on how they work, move and live. And those have to be taken into account into policymaking to ensure that we, in the transition, can help people either maintain that on their jobs, in the sectors, or move to new ones. The question you asked is the big difficulty is that these effects are not equal across sectors and regions, but they differ a lot. And to give you the broad classification, maybe here we have the declining sectors, which were mentioned, sectors where we are sure people will have to phase out or lose their jobs in coal, oil, gas, uh, mining, fossil-based industries. And where the regions who happen often to rely on those need to develop new business models and new economic development strategies overall. According to our estimates, this concerns some 215,000 direct jobs in the union and another 140,000 indirect ones. Then you have the bigger part of transforming sectors and notably in the energy intensive industries. To give examples, automotive industry or chemical industry, uh, the automotive sector alone has almost 15 million jobs in the EU. And there, for example, one of the big challenges is to restructure the sector and reskill people because the type of work will change. And last, I would like to mention the expanding and new emerging sectors I mentioned, uh, which provide new job opportunities. And um, let's say this is, for example, solar wind energy in Spain, France, Italy, the Baltics, across the board in Europe. And there the challenges, again, may be different ones. That is to attract people to those sectors and to address some of the structural challenges in these new sectors, which often employ rather few women, few young people, few low qualified people who need to be attracted to those jobs and retrained to those jobs and retained in those jobs. Putting our focus back specifically on the EU Green Deal, Ludovic, what would you say are the primary concerns of workers in the EU as the European Green Deal progresses? And how are labor organizations advocating for workers' rights in this changing landscape? Mm. Yeah, for European workers, uh, the development of the European Green Deal, of course, is important on the climate action needs. So it's, of course, a welcome initiative in terms of the need to tackle climate action. But on the other hand, it fails for the moment to be a social deal. Uh, it fails to anticipate the social and labor consequence of the climate policies that are put in place. If we, uh, for example, uh, look at uh, each of the legislation, 
we think that we would need to anticipate the change and the social and labor consequence of each of these legislation. For example, the challenge that Frank mentioned of the automotive sector, of course, with a different legislation that will affect the production in the automotive sector with electrification and with new rules for the phase out of, of emissions in these sectors. This will affect deeply millions of jobs in the EU. This will change, but this is possible to anticipate if the right framework are in place in order to say, okay, if we ask companies to plan the transition and to anticipate the change with uh, trade unions, this is then possible to identify which skills change. If there's uh, less labor intensity in these jobs and that you require less workers to produce the same amount of electric cars than with a combustion engine vehicles, then we need also to anticipate this, maybe by discussing also working time reduction or retraining those that would like to go to other sectors or creating new jobs also in the automotive sector linked to the circular economy introduction in uh, the sector. So this can only be done with concrete discussion in these industries, but with responsibilities for companies to anticipate the changes, because if not, the risk for European workers is that companies make their choice in 2030, 2035, when they have to stop emitting, and that at that moment we have big restructuring processes, and that we have exactly the same that happened half a century ago for the globalization period, where a lot of companies went out of Europe with a massive destruction of industrial jobs and a rise in unemployment in a lot of regions in Europe, because the transition was not just. And we cannot afford that the climate transition follow the same path with allowing companies only to restructure and relocate if they want. Of course, also another concern is not only the consequence on jobs, it's also the consequence on cost because a lot of climate policies are market pricing oriented. So meaning that by integrating the cost of carbon, the price of the goods will become more expensive. And this is, of course, in the context of a cost of living crisis with high energy prices, with a lot of workers also at a level of wage that is quite low in a lot of countries. Like in Bulgaria, you have 60% of people in energy poverty. This shows a huge social challenge of being able to access and continue consuming for workers and access only basic consumption. Ludovic, you just mentioned the involvement of the EU Green Deal. So, Frank, um, the EU Green Deal has been adopted in 2019. Or what would you say in its current phase are the pressing social justice challenges that the Commission is prioritizing? Yes, as um, Ludovic rightly said, and we, we discussed a bit already before, the impact on households, vulnerable communities and so on, um, energy poverty and transport poverty, which is another separate aspect we're looking at, linked to a lack of accessibility, affordability, or availability of alternative transport solutions, be they private, move to electromobility or public ones, are important here. So this is something which is probably to start with energy poverty already before the energy crisis starting in 21 after the attack on Ukraine. 35 million Europeans were in energy poverty, which we define based on surveys again as people, households not stating that they're unable to keep the homes adequately warm or cool and or pay their energy bills. Now, a lot of measures have been taken throughout the energy crisis to help cushion the price effects on households and also on companies where I have not yet discussed this, but obviously these high energy costs in the current context are also a challenge for many companies as part of the transition. And a lot of member states have taken fast measures during the energy crisis to address these price effects and to try to protect vulnerable households and also companies to the extent possible. And without going too much into detail, 
I think uh, Ludovic alluded to this, obviously, social policies, employment policies overall in the European Union and the member states do matter in this context. At the European level, we have a so-called European Pillar of Social Rights, which sets out a compass on policies and rights we want to defend in the employment and social policy field, including adequate wages, including access to essential services, as was mentioned, including right to inclusive training, equal opportunities, and many others. And initiatives in all of those, obviously, which do help us achieve our social targets at European level. Although at the same time, we also have to admit that the fact that energy prices have been rising or that inequalities as a consequence are seen to have risen is not a direct consequence of the green transition. On the contrary, and, uh, the argument was made, had we been faster in the green transition, our economies and societies would have been more resilient. Obviously, the green transition has the objective to reduce energy costs. Energy costs by moving to renewable energies should be lower for companies and for households in the future. The big issue which Ludwig often mentioned is the transition. How do we help people who cannot afford these upfront investments now to face them or workers to face the transition? Let's say allow retraining, reskilling, uh, reallocating them in the labor market while providing income security. This transition challenge is the main one we have to discuss. This is not to say that the price incentives will lead to ever higher energy costs or more problems. On the contrary, it is a transition issue. There are many other social challenges you mentioned. Um, I mean, in the interest of time, I don't go into too much detail. I just want to quickly mention them. First, we see signs of growing labor and skill shortages in the labor market. And that's a serious issue which could undermine the success of the transition. And this is related also to the uh, investment and provision of training and uptake of training at company level. I think our conversation has unpacked the challenges and needs side very well. And now I'd like to speak a little bit about the EU mechanisms and the solution side. So let's talk a bit about the EU's toolbox and how the EU is implementing a just transition. So Frank, could you outline what these uh, mechanisms are. For example, the EU's Just Transition Mechanism, what's involved in that, and what's the current implementation status? Thank you very much. As I said already, I think there's a um, robust framework already in place with the uh, European Pillar of Social Rights, I did mention before, with the UN uh, 2030 Sustainable Development Agenda. So there's a framework in place to setting targets uh, also in the social employment area and addressing those. Under the European Green Deal, a lot of more specific initiatives are being developed, which do have contributed to further developing the just transition policy framework at European level, if I may call it like this. Let me start with the first one, which is part of the Fit for 55 package I already mentioned before, and that's a so-called council recommendation on ensuring a fair transition towards climate neutrality. Through this recommendation, member states have committed to put in place comprehensive policy packages together with the social partners and to assess their specific challenges uh, and the policy needs to respond to those. So this includes measures to create good quality jobs in the transition, help people find a job and create new employment also in the transition. It includes measures to ensure upskilling and reskilling through dedicated education training programs for the green transition. But it also includes good social protection systems and tax benefit systems which are adjusted as needed to the specific challenges of the green transition. So to put in place, as we said before, income or social safety nets, social insurances, occupational health and safety legislation, which does help protect workers in this transition. And last but not least, they should put in place measures to ensure access to essential services, such as energy transport mentioned before. 
And we have met only last year with member states to start the first round of monitoring. There's a process where we monitor together, the peer review process where member states assess to what extent they follow up. And we also discussed this with the other stakeholders. You mentioned other more financial tools um, which have been put in place. One important one is the so-called Just Transition Mechanism, which was set up in January 22 as part of the Green Deal. And this one includes in particular a financial instrument, which is called the Just Transition Fund. This tool provides support for the most affected regions in the EU, the coal regions we mentioned before, or regions with a large employment share in polluting industries which will phasing out of jobs. The Just Transition Fund provides support in the order of 20 billion euros to regions most in need to mitigate the effects of this transition on the region and territories as well as the workers. So practically member states have identified which are the regions needing that type of support and they have set up so-called territorial just transition plans negotiated with the commission in which they identify which are the projects to be funded. European level, overall 93 regions benefit from support under this Just Transition Fund, with uh, Romania, Poland and Germany being the highest beneficiaries in terms of volumes. But there are more tools which were put in place. One I would like to mention is the so-called Social Climate Fund, which has been decided, but which is not yet set up. It will be set up until 26. And this is related to new emissions trading on building and road transport sectors, sectors which before had been exempted from the European emissions trading system, but sectors which have not seen reductions of their emissions compared to other sectors who are seen to have to speed up their emission reductions. This new emission trading scheme will lead to higher costs and higher prices in these areas. So what will that fund allow? That fund provides support in the order of 65 billion euros from the EU budget, plus 25% on top to be provided for member states to finance measures and investments that help address the social impacts for the most vulnerable households, vulnerable transport users and vulnerable enterprises. And um, support measures member states can finance with this fund include uh, decarbonization measures in buildings, renovation was mentioned, energy efficiency measures, but also measures to increase the access to zero and low emission mobility and transport, including public transport. In addition, and it's a very important new feature of this fund, can also provide temporary direct income support to the most vulnerable households and transport users. And this income support, let's say, needs to take into account also the time dimension it needed before the investments in energy efficiency and so on kick in and reduce costs effectively. And a very interesting feature of this social climate fund is that it will be front-loaded. It means the measures can be financed at least one year before the new emissions trading kicks in. So it's recognized also here in the European legislation in the area that households and vulnerable microenterprises may need support before. In addition to that, you do have, let's say, the more traditional instruments like so-called cohesion funds, the European Regional Development Fund and the European Social Fund Plus, a fund of almost 100 billion euros in the current financing period until 2027, is the main fund in the EU to support people and human capital. And through this fund, for example, member states can support investments in green skills, reskilling and upskilling, 
out of those funds, 40 billion support uh, educational skills overall and some 6 billion specifically uh, green skills. So turning to you, uh, Ludovic, this is a framework you follow closely, I imagine. And so what are your thoughts from your perspective as organizer of labor in the EU on this set of tools that have been collected together? I think it's important to recognize that the EU has done its best to uh, use the existing funding and trying to create a new funding in order to finance climate action. But uh, what we see as trade unions is that the tools at disposal are not sufficient to the challenge that we are facing. The Just Transition Fund is, of course, something that the trade unions were asking for, and that was a welcome. The problem of the Just Transition Fund is that in its scope, it's quite limited to the coal and energy intensive industries, and in its amount, and the size of the fund is 20 billion, as mentioned by Frank. Of course, nobody knows what 20 billion is. But to make a comparison, Germany, to finance its coal pays out in 1920, did put 40 billion on the table. So double of the budget that the EU has at EU level to finance the Just Transition funds, and also extends the Just Transition Fund to other industries that need to transform their industries through investments, etc. So there's a need to transform more industries that are also dependent on the carbonized energy. For example, the aluminium industry, the steel industry, the paper industry, the cement industry, etc. needs to transform itself and it's important that it can also be supported. A second tool that I would like to comment is a social climate fund that was, of course, deeply needed because we need a tool to anticipate the social consequence of the higher prices of the climate policies. So, as I said before, you have the labor consequence of the climate transition and you have the social consequence of the climate transition in terms of price increase, etc., and uh, support to the most vulnerable. So it's good to have on one hand a just transition fund that focuses on the world of work and on the other hand also a social climate fund that can address the issues of vulnerability and mobility, poverty, etc. So deeply needed, but here again, insufficiently funded. But worse than that, it's also funded by the measure that will increase energy poverty and mobility poverty, the emission and trading system extended to the road transport and the eating of building as described by Frank. Of course, it's not only public investments that we need. We need also private investments, but it shows the extent of the problem. The lack of financing will be problematic. At the same time, if you take another fact, it's that the Recovery and Resilience Fund that was described by Frank will end in 2026. So meaning that there's no money available to finance climate action after, except limited resource that will be linked to the emission and trading system. So this means that if we want to finance at European level the decarbonation in Poland, in Bulgaria, to help the countries that will have the most difficulty to decarbonize, we have a big problem if these countries have to make cuts at the same moment. I would like here to take one example of how it's also bad to come back to this fiscal consolidation approach. We have an example that is clearly linked also to climate disasters. This year, in July, in Slovenia, floods for one week. The amounts of damage in Slovenia in one week due to floods, direct consequence of climate change, were 5 billion euro. 5 billion euro is 8% of Slovenia GDP, meaning that if Slovenia only wants to rebuild what was destroyed in one week, so not even invest in protecting themselves to the next challenges that might appear with the climate crisis. 
they cannot because if we apply the new rules that they cannot invest, of course, 8% of their GDP in rebuilding the facilities that were destroyed. And same case, Slovenia is among the countries that have a deficit in their national budget that would imply that they have to make cuts next year, meaning less workers, maybe in environmental protection or less teachers or nurses, etc. Ludovic, you've already spoken a little bit about the example of Spain, but do you maybe have one other example, success story of labor organizations helping to achieve the climate transitions in certain regions? We are, of course, in discussion on just transition, often trying to mitigate the effects, so trying to have the least possible effect on the labor reallocation. We don't have a lot of examples where the negotiations or the just transition agreements would have created more quality jobs and higher paid. So it's especially because of what we discussed at the beginning, the need to reinforce the European Green Deal and also the fact that the European Green Deal is only now negotiated, but not also completely put in place. So the transformation linked to the Green Deal has uh, for the moment not a direct effect in all of the industries where workers could negotiate just transition agreements. So this brings difficulty in assessing real success story. But at the same time, yes, trade unions are engaged in trying to anticipate exactly these changes and not to be waiting for the companies to do it and then be faced with restructuring. Uh, one of the examples that already exists is from a company in the Netherlands, Tata Steel, where faced to the risk of uh, the steel industry to lose jobs in the steel industry due to decarbonation, the unions in this company prepare the plan that they then propose to the company to decarbonize and to replace CO2 emissions with hydrogen, to uh, make the investments in hydrogen. And then they had this agreement with the company asking also the Dutch government to support this because you also need then to uh, support the infrastructures that will allow to replace carbon emission with hydrogen. So this shows that Unions and labor can be ports of proposal also at company level. But what is difficult at company level is that you depend a lot on the policy framework that are put in place at national level, at European level and at sectoral level. So you depend a lot on other level of legislations or initiative. And so that's why we need the right tools in place in this regard. That's why we are calling for a EU directive on just transition that would reinforce the rights of workers at sectoral level, at company level to anticipate the change with their companies that would also give them more rights and uh, reinforce democracy at work. More trade union rights is also a way to make sure that companies have to take into account the social and the climate transition together and not oppose climate and social issues because this is clearly a risk that we see. So this is a concrete example at company level. Of course, there are also another example, like I would say at country level with the German coal agreement that I already mentioned on the size of the agreement. But that's also an agreement that has been done in tripartite negotiations with employers, government and trade unions in order to also there secure the investment needs to transform these industries and to secure the jobs of the workers and finance also a retraining. We are at the beginning phase of implementing the policy framework. So what advice would you give to national and regional decision makers to ensure actually a successful implementation? Um, Frank, let's start with you. We have to focus on monitoring and implementation at the same time. But obviously, monitoring is key. Putting in place the policies, the actions we have committed to 
while assessing them, while assessing in parallel the impacts and engaging in an open dialogue uh, with those concerned workers, households, with uh, social partners, stakeholders, civil society, also to see if there is a need to readjust measures, that we, we do take measures which we think will have positive impacts or whether impacts can be mitigated, but obviously we have to live that transition and to be open and transparent about this. This said is I think we need to at the same time develop tools and understand better what are the costs of inaction or the costs of delay or partial implementation because all of the policies we have spoken about today are packages are tied together a last point probably is need for focus on adaptation unfortunately we cannot undo the effects of climate change and uh, there's a need to adapt at all levels at the workplace in daily life and that brings with it uh, a number of challenges including to workers and communities to make our societies as resilient as we can uh, so this is something to be developed and to end on a positive note uh, i think what in europe we have to do but at all levels we have to do is to empower people to participate and to be part of that change who according to our surveys and analysis want to be part of that change they are aware of the urgency they see a personal responsibility the large majority of them at least and they want to be part of that change and that's something which policy has to support and for which policymakers have to provide a credible reliable framework and policies that support them And Ludovic, what would be your key recommendations to ensure the workers' rights and interests are protected? I would say three points to policymakers. It's reindustrialize Europe while decarbonizing Europe and ensuring that it's a labor rights oriented, good quality jobs oriented policies that are being put in place. It's here important maybe to focus a little bit on labor rights because wages, working conditions will also be part of the answer to mobilize people in the transition. So it's important that we attack the precarious jobs and that we put in place policies that make sure that people can live from their work, that they don't have to have two, three, four jobs or that they are in work poverty. So this is the only way that then we can convince that climate policy also has a role to play because when you cannot even pay the bill, then you don't even think about the end of the world but you think about the end of the month and this is something that we have to match in the policy response and this element is of course important because a lot of new jobs will be created but often the jobs that will be destroyed were good quality jobs good paid with high standards in terms of health and safety measures because they were highly unionized jobs We see that there's a lot of jobs in the renovation wave, in the renewable energy that will need a lot of workers in Europe to decarbonize and to reindustrialize Europe with good quality jobs at the skills level that they already have. So I think this is an important point. And this is the only way to conclude to avoid also calls to slow down. Because there's a lot of emerging calls by conservative forces, some member states and some politicians to slow down the Green Deal. 
Of course, we need time to put in place the Green Deal and trade unions acknowledge that and ask for time also to put the negotiations in place with trade unions in order to secure the support to the measures. But the slowdown is also a danger because the slowdown calls are often in order not to deliver on the green objectives. And here, as mentioned by Frank, the cost of inaction will be higher in the years and decades to come, as I showed with the Slovenian example with floods, or if you take also in Greece or in other countries, the forest fire, or you see the effect of drought and you see the effect of hurricanes, etc. in different regions, you see that the cost of climate crisis will be important and that we have to prepare ourselves and the sooner we do the transition the better it is well our conversation has achieved what the goal that we had set for this particular episode which was to really unpack some of these important social dimensions of the climate transition dimensions of economics labor social impacts across the eu Frank and Ludovic, thank you very much for joining us today on Green Deal Big Deal to discuss how to ensure that a just transition occurs. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks for my side as well. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So, Aaron, that was an interesting discussion about how the EU Green Deal ensures or addresses a just and fair transition. What are your takeaways from today's discussion with Ludovic and Frank? Well, I think the complexity of the challenge really struck me. And also the fact that it's a multi-level challenge. You know, it's happening at the level of every, everywhere from the, the EU level, which we focused a lot on today, but also even down to the individual level of what kind of career am I going to pursue? What kind of training will be available to me? Um, you know, and that affects then communities, it affects regions, it affects uh, member states, etc. So, really a multi-level challenge. Um, also, that this goes beyond just the labor aspect, the jobs aspect, to also issues of affordability. So, as we transition away from fossil fuel energies, for example, investment being needed to get those renewable energy sources up and running at the level of homes and transport. Um, those are costs. And so, figuring out how to help people make that transition and ensure that they can is an important part of, of ensuring the climate transition. And that brings me to, I think, the last point that I want to bring up, which is it really struck me this important political connection between the social aspect and the climate aspect. And that achieving ambitious climate goals, if it does not have social support, because it comes at too great a cost for certain communities, for example, then that climate transition is jeopardized as well. You know, you're thinking a lot about environmental concerns, but you're not taking in the social dimensions. Then, uh, in, you know, in the context of democratic decision making, uh, you might be in for a surprise. Yes, yeah, I totally agree. I also thought that this whole of social inclusion, as I think it was Ludovic who mentioned it, I thought this was really interesting and also that it is such an important aspect to create this dialogue between all the levels of society. And I guess then also in this way, there was this mentioning of the aspect of anticipation of the change to prepare the stakeholders really to, you know, as you rightly said, for the training measures or yeah, restructuring of certain regions. It's quite frightening to hear that there's still like the, the vast amount of the investment needs. 
But I guess also quite encouraging that now sort of this was the first phase of the Green Deal and that we're now entering into a new phase and that there's currently talks in how to improve the implementation of a just transition. Yeah, and there was discussion about this idea of front-loading, you know, actually in advance, making sure that you're thinking about the social component and adequate investment being possible upfront, even before some of these other policies go into place that are, are going to make traditional forms of energy more costly. So before we say goodbye to our listeners, I'd like to talk a little bit about one of our recent webinars in which we spoke about the EU's proposal for a nature restoration law. Mm -hmm. So as it happens, I had a little chat with one of our participants to find out more about why he's interested in the law and why he thinks it's a crucial regulation for a green future. What do you say? Shall we give it a listen? Of course, sounds good. Hi, Enrico, and welcome to the Green Deal Big Deal podcast. Happy to have you here with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. I would like you to introduce yourself. So can you please tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, sure. Um, I'm Enrico Mezzacabo. I am a PhD student of the Agri-Food and Environmental Law Research Group at Sant'Anna's University in Pisa. And I have been in the food and agriculture sector for some time now. My research deals with the sustainability of the agri-food supply chain in the context of climate and biodiversity fragility. And specifically, I'm studying EU legal and policy framework, especially the solution that can contribute to the halting of habitat loss. So you've recently joined our webinar on the nature restoration law. What made you join the session? For sure, the topic of the webinar, it's very close to my research area. And I'm really interested in the proposal of the nature restoration law that is now in the last phase of uh, approval at the European level. And um, of course, this proposal, it's uh, really, really relevant to my research topic, but also it's really interesting to study the relationship between this nature restoration law proposal and the agri-food sector. What would you say was your main takeaway from the webinar? Well, I had the pleasure to hear the comments and the description of this proposal from Umberto Rosa and Sabine Lemons that are working on the topic from a very close perspective at European level and as professionals in this field. And of course, I didn't miss the chance to ask them questions, particularly about the resistance that this proposal is facing from some parts of the European uh, Parliament, uh, especially from conservative parties, but also from farmers' organizations, farmers' demonstrations. Uh, there's really a huge debate around that. And with my work, I'm trying to address. Hmm. Yeah, and you just mentioned that your current research focuses on the loss of habitats in the agri-food sector with a special focus on Europe and EU regulatory frameworks or instruments to conserve and restore the habitats. What would be your recommendations to future EU policymaking within this context? First of all, we have to say that now the proposal is in the last phase of approval. The Article 9 that included the restoration of agri-food systems was cutted. The first suggestion is to include the agri-food systems in the nature restoration law proposals. From the legal point of view, what the law can provide for sure 
is to try to cast the light on the meaning and definition of restoration, we also need to see how restoration is conducted, especially how to regulate restoration. And the ecological restoration remains pretty much obscure to most of the law and policy framework, especially related to agri-food. For example, the legal priority remains to avert, mitigate, and adapt to new ecological impact, uh, while the regulators take care of new threats instead of trying to restore what has been lost. We are really endangering the regenerative capacity of nature. And basically, the losses are continuing to outpace the recovery. Well, thank you for joining us today, Enrico. And we hope to see you soon again at one of our webinar series. Thanks a lot. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today, our 12th in the series. We hope today's episode helped you get a better understanding of the needs and challenges involved in the clean energy transition and making it a just transition. And of course, we also welcome you to join our webinar series. You can learn more about it and sign up for upcoming webinars on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. To be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes, you can follow our Instagram channel at Green Deal Big Deal. You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative, funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety, and Consumer Protection. The Ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag. The podcast is produced by Chiara Mazzetti, Eva Ivaschuk, Ricarda Faber, and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebli, graphic and web design by Jennifer Rahn. Special thanks to Anna Henze-Henschel, Liliane Sala, Philipp Katz, Nora Kögel, Camilla Bausch, and Michael Lorenz.